Hello and welcome to Fat Cat Pod, a podcast about economic crime, corruption and political scandal. I am your host Amy and I'm super excited to introduce this first episode. I wanted to do something a little bit different to a true crime podcast that covered primarily violent crime. And so Fat Cat Pod is all about the fat cats, the scandalous, the scammers and the fraudsters. So I hope you enjoy. Shows will drop weekly on Thursdays and so from now on your Thursdays will be known as Fat Cat Thursdays. That's the pod and now a little bit about me. I'm a big true crime junkie and I love deep dive documentaries that focus on political, economic and social commentary. And so this is kind of a mashup of a lot of things that I'm really into and I hope you're into it too. So let's just get into the topic. I'm kicking off with an absolute OG of fraud, Mr. Charles Ponzi. So if you've ever wondered why a Ponzi scheme is called a Ponzi scheme, it's because of this guy. I have to say, I I didn't actually know much about Charles Ponzi before researching for this show. I knew of the name and I know what a Ponzi scheme is. Uh, so the the whole story is completely new to me and I wasn't familiar with what actually went down. And um, you're actually really in for a treat because it's a really interesting story that I, I think it's one of those things that not a lot of people know about, but it's, it is really interesting. And someone needs to do some kind of deep dive documentary on it or some kind of adaptation and stick it on Netflix because it's a really fascinating story and I'm really excited to be um, talking about it today. So um, before I go into what exactly happened in the case of Charles Ponzi, I will just quickly go over what a Ponzi scheme is. You are probably all familiar with this but um, if you're not a Ponzi scheme is in very simple terms an investment scam which provides returns to original or older investors at the expense of a new investor. So a very straightforward example of this is say I tell you all about a get rich a get rich quick scheme where everyone listening to this podcast invests um, 10 pounds let's say and I say to you right I promise that I will double your money in 30 days. I then use the money from the newer listeners to provide returns to the day one ride or die listeners And eventually, it's completely impossible for me to have an unlimited number of listeners. The bottom completely falls out. And the bottom just falls out because I can't double everyone's money, despite the fact that I've promised to do that to everyone. I've promised to do that for everyone. So usually the newer listeners, and let's face that, that, let's face it, that's nearly always the majority of listeners or investors will lose their money so that's a ponzi scheme there's no product or an or any real investment activity taking place to generate any profit and the risk to 
people's money who invest in these kind of schemes is usually described as very little or none at all. And Ponzi schemes essentially will always rely on attracting new investors in order to keep on going. So you've figured out now, and if you are familiar with what a Ponzi scheme is anyway, you will know that it's mathematically impossible ultimately for investors or for all of the investors to make profit as the scheme is you're essentially just robbing robbing Peter to pay Paul. So you're taking money from one person and giving it to another. And so Ponzi schemes are basically illegal everywhere because they essentially work on deceiving people and misrepresenting the nature as well as the risk profile of an investment. And you're essentially just borrowing money from one person and then paying it back it's just essentially fancy stealing. So Ponzi schemes are also, um, they they kind of get coupled with uh, pyramid schemes quite often, but they are subtly different to pyramid schemes. So with pyramid schemes, the onus is on the investor uh, it, as an individual to cultivate and recruit new investors and then they will get returns from the people who they recruit. Uh, in Ponzi schemes, you've got one individual at the top who manages the scheme and directly brings in new investors. So when I'm in a Ponzi scheme, if I invest into a Ponzi scheme, I just give the money and I don't actually have to do anything. Whereas if I were to invest in a pyramid scheme, I would give the money but I would then be responsible for bringing in new recruits and then essentially um, my return would be through uh, drawing in new recruits. So you can have a situation in Ponzi schemes where an investor gets their return back and then reinvests money into the scheme again uh, which I will talk about a bit later because that does happen in the situation of Charles Ponzi. Um, and pyramid schemes are sometimes illegal and sometimes uh, they are legal. It just really um, hinges on what the investment activity is. So if there is a real investment activity uh, taking place in a pyramid scheme, then they are essentially legal but where there's no real investment activity taking place to actually make any profit in the scheme they essentially are just like a, a kind of different breed of a Ponzi scheme. So you you know what a Ponzi scheme is now I'll um I'll get into what happens with Charles Ponzi. So Charles Ponzi was born Carlo Ponzi in 1882 in Lugo, Italy. And Ponzi comes from quite a well-to-do family, but they've fallen on hard times uh, through generations of financial mismanagement. So at the time Ponzi grows up, his family, although at one point were very wealthy generations back, they actually had very little money. 
Charles uh, goes to university in Rome. Um, university in the 19th century was only available for the most socially privileged in society, which meant that when Ponzi went to the university, most of his peers had come from families of wealth and families that had more wealth than his. And Charles falls into a crowd at university that party their way through uni, basically. And, you know, they've got lots of money and lots of social capital behind them. So they don't really have to work very hard for anything. And four years later, uh, Ponzi comes out of university having spent all of his money and having obtained no degree. And so coupled with this late 19th century boom in um, education, I guess. There's also a late 19th century boom of immigration from Italy to America. There's lots of young men taking their chance on a boat to the US to start new lives, or sometimes they go out there and work for a few years and return back having made a fortune. And Ponzi was encouraged by his family to do the same and um, emigrate to the US to essentially try and restore the the um, the family wealth and the the family honor, I guess, that had earlier been lost. So. Ponzi boards the SS Vancouver and arrives in Boston in November 1903. Allegedly, he only has $2.50 in his pocket. And I'm not sure if this is one of those um, stories that become parts of the story, at least, that become legend, where it's just, you know, oh, you know, they made it, they had $2.50 in their pocket. Um, who knows? And and then along with that, the, the story goes that he actually had originally left Italy with more money and then whilst on the gut whilst on the boat he got into gambling and gambled most of the money away whilst on the boat and left left the boat <laughs> as it docks in Boston with two dollars fifty so I mean who knows whether that part of the story is true or there's a nugget of truth in there but it, I mean it sounds essentially that he lands in America if you're considering that this guy is going to start a new life in America he lands up in America with very little money um if it is two dollars fifty for 1903 standards yeah it's more than what we know to be two dollars fifty now but it's just not a lot of money let's just say and uh, after Ponzi lands in America, he takes up uh, various odd jobs up and down the East Coast. None of them of any notable financial success for him. And then, so in 1907, uh, Ponzi then makes a move to Montreal in Canada. And he gets a job as a bank teller at Banco Zorossi. And Banco Zorossi is, na is, is named Banco, well, it is named Banco Zorossi, but it's also, it's owned by a guy called Mr. Zorossi. At Banco Zorossi, uh, Ponzi gets involved in a investment scheme which kind of echoes what we now know 
to be the Ponzi scheme. It's not the Ponzi scheme, but it's a investment scam, which is ve- which is essentially a Ponzi scheme. So just as a kind of side note here, um, Ponzi didn't invent Ponzi schemes. Uh, he just, it's just the scale and the notoriety of what Charles Ponzi eventually does, which um, is why the name is given Ponzi scheme. Um, there are Ponzi schemes that have dated back way before Charles Ponzi. Um, he's just the guy that got really famous for it. So that's why, that's why it's named it. But anyway, I'll continue. So the bank was paying out interest at 6% on bank deposits, uh, which sounds amazing by today's standards where interest rates are a low I mean I don't know what country you're in but traditionally interest rates are much lower and um this was apparently for the day as well a very good rate and it was better than all of the bank's competitors and um the rate was considered so good that Banco Zarossi was growing really quickly and Ponzi is promoted up through the ranks and eventually is promoted to bank manager. The problem is that although the mon- the bank is growing with more and more people opening accounts and depositing money, the bank's actually in um in real terms performing quite badly due to some really bad real estate debt, which when I read that, I just thought Mm, that sounds a lot like the 2008 banking crash. But anyway, um, instead of the act, what was going on at Banco Zorossi was that instead of paying interest from the bank's profits, Zorossi had actually just been paying out interest on other people's accounts. So this is the robbing Peter to pay Paul uh, strategy, I guess, that Mr. Zorossi was adopting. And also what he had been doing, which again is very um, resonant of a lot of Ponzi schemes, is that Zorossi had been creaming off some of the um, the money off the top as well um, on top of that. So he had just been sort of just outright stealing, I guess. And um, the, the bank, obviously all of this is completely unsustainable. The bank cannot keep opening accounts forever and particularly when Mr. Zorossi is paying back interest that he can't, you know, he he can't get from anywhere other than people opening accounts and he's creaming off this money as well. Um, the bank, the bank actually just eventually fails. I, I don't think the bank lasts for particularly long after this all starts happening. And then Zorossi flees to Mexico with a lot of stolen money in tow. And Ponzi is left in Ponzi is left in Montreal with no money and he makes a plan to head back to the US and try his luck again there. Um, but before Ponzi reaches the US he's imprisoned for bank fraud because obviously he's implicated in all of this um, in all of this stuff, even though Zorossi's made a made an escape. And whilst in prison, it's said that Ponzi writes to his mother to tell her uh, that he has a new job as an assistant to the prison warden. Uh, so there's this um, kind of reoccurring theme of Ponzi. He's 
he kind of comes across as a bit of a I don't want to say a mama's boy that's a bit you know I don't know <laughs> that's maybe a bit uh yeah a, a little bit too far but he he has this affection with his mother and I think he really he's really sort of trying to impress her and trying to make her proud and so he writes to his mother a lot um in the course of his uh his escapades in in America in North America so um I'm I'm a, I'm guessing that uh telling that the whole story about being the assistant to the prison warden was so she could write to him in prison and not think that he was an inmate so um so that kind of um, sums up what Ponzi's doing and then when he's released from prison so he's released in prison in 1911 and he moves back to America the states the US and he gets married to a stenographer and I think stenographers are people who are they the people who draw pictures of people in court? I should really know that. Um, but I think that's what they that's what they are. And um, there wasn't court TV in America back in the day. So um, so he marries a stenographer named Rose. And by 1919, Ponzi begins what we now know to be the Ponzi scheme. And so Ponzi sets up an office in Boston and his original business was he would come up with business ideas and he would pitch them to companies in Europe. That doesn't bring him any financial success, but the story goes that through corresponding with one of these contacts in Europe, he receives a letter from a company in Spain and within the correspondence there is an international reply coupon. So I'll stop here and explain what is an international reply coupon. Well, an international reply coupon was the early 20th century's answer to prepaid postage. So you could send correspondence um, and the, the sender could enclose a reply coupon which would be purchased from the country that the letter was sent. And then the recipient could reply with the cost of the postage uh, of reply covered by that coupon. There was a loophole in this coupon system that Ponzi spotted as the prices for postage were different. I'm going to get this completely wrong, actually. So let's let's try it. So the loophole that spotted was that the prices for postage were different in different countries. And the price of a coupon um, that you would purchase from one country could then be exchanged for the postage cost in the country in which the coupon was redeemed. So because of the differentiation in the postage prices, um, there was potential to make profit by purchasing coupons in a country where postage costs were low and then redeeming in countries where the postage costs were high. And then the potential for that profit was exacerbated by the fact that Europe had just emerged from World War One, and there were many countries in Europe that were economically crippled and some countries bankrupted uh, um, from uh, the war. And it meant that postage costs in Europe uh, remained comparatively low in, compared to the US. So you could exchange the stamps in the US 
and you could then sell the, the stamps and make a profit. Now that kind of exchange, this whole coupon exchange and selling system is known as arbitrage and it's it was legal then and it, it still is today and there are some businesses that model their whole thing on arbitrage completely fine. And uh, Ponzi's business idea with this coupon exchange essentially was just a classic buy it low, sell it high business model. And Ponzi used this business opportunity to then proposition individuals to invest in his business. And then Ponzi was able to invest, well, able to persuade people to invest, claiming that he would double their money within 90 days or provide a 50% return within 45 days. To begin with, Ponzi was paying back the initial investors as he had promised. However, some investors were reinvesting their money, seeing others investing and feeling that they were losing out in the potential to continue profiting from the business opportunity. And then word of, how, word of mouth was also helping Ponzi bring in new investors. So with all of this, he soon expanded his business to fancier offices and in January 1920 he set up a company called Securities the secure sorry it was called the Securities Exchange Company and a frenzy essentially starts to ensue and Ponzi's bringing in it, it just scales up just in a really really quick time uh, and Ponzi is is bringing in a million dollars in a month a million dollars a month by March 1920 and he's expanding his reach to new investors also from New Jersey and New England. At this time investors were still seeing returns as the number of investors was continuing to grow and there were also people that were reinvesting the money after getting their returns and then by June 1920 2.5 million dollars had been invested into the scheme and investment continued to grow so much so that by the end of July a million dollars a day was being invested and investors were just you know giving in their life savings, remortgaging houses, selling off assets just to get as much money as possible to pump into this thing and Pon it gets to a point that in Boston, Ponzi effectively has control of the banks in which he um, deposits his money. Uh, and it, it represents most of the money in, in the banks in Boston <laughs> at one point. And whilst all of this investment activity was happening, you're thinking, what what's happening with the coupon stuff? But Ponzi's actually not embarked on any business activity with this coupon exchange business idea. And I think the thing that's interesting about Ponzi is it's not, it's never really clear and within whatever I've read, it's, you don't, you can't really quite tell whether that's deliberate and the coupon exchange is just a front to to entice investors in and just give a false credibility to the whole thing 
or that Ponzi actually intended to engage in this legitimate business that could make money, but just got completely weighed down and overwhelmed and distracted essentially by all of this investment frenzy. So it's it's always a bit of a, was he, I mean, he obviously was a crook, but was this all deliberate or was was he kind of an accidental crook um, and a victim of his own success, I guess? And that, so Ponzi was still paying out these returns as promised, but he's not making any profit. So he's he's just relying essentially on more and more investors to come in. And so... Um, it, it's still kind of going at, it's, the the scheme is still on, under its own steam, uh, continuing, but obviously there's a point where it all unravels. Now we've established that it's mathematically impossible for the scheme to continue forever and for everyone to make money, you're probably wondering when does the bottom fall out? Well, whilst many were falling over one another to invest in Ponzi's scheme, there were some people who were also suspicious. So despite the financial opportunities in the US, which enabled a lot of European migrants to become really, really rich really quickly, it was still seen as really unusual how Ponzi seemingly made it from being completely penniless to a millionaire in a really short period of time. So we're talking a matter of months rather than years. And Ponzi lived a really overtly lavish lifestyle and he didn't hide that at all. And within months of his investment scheme starting, he was kind of a local celebrity in Boston. Uh, He used to drive one of the fanciest, most expensive cars in the city, which of course was custom made. And he dressed in these really impeccable, uh, expensive suits that were bespoke. And he lived one of the most prestigious addresses within the Boston area. And he just had bags of money and it was really on show. And it was, I guess, like a lot of Ponzi schemes um, that have come after Ponzi, um, there's this idea of people really kind of, um, the the person who runs the Ponzi scheme kind of being the face of it and really kind of making themselves an advertisement in a way where they're just, you know, they look like they're really rich and they're like, hey, you guys can be rich just like me. And, and that was essentially what what Ponzi was doing really. So he was very indiscreet and there were critics to the scheme who essentially pointed out what was true and said, look, there's no way that it's legally possible for Ponzi to deliver the returns that he's promised to to the investors. Um, And Ponzi actually at one point managed to successfully sue a financial writer, allegedly um, for $500,000, who had, and this writer who had published a piece stating that it was legally impossible for 
Ponzi to deliver the returns. I haven't managed to find a lot about this lawsuit, but it's, it's pretty darn brazen of Ponzi to sue for libel um, and essentially for uh, sue for libel for something that a writer has published which is, is ostensibly is actually true and um, yeah it's um, I would imagine that during the course of the trial Ponzi would risk you know there being kind of auditing and delving into his business and the accounts and it's a it was a huge risk for him to sue for libel which i mean uh, in one on one hand i guess it was a huge risk to for uncovering essentially that his business was all a massive sham um but then on the other hand the publicity of the ponzi scheme the investment scheme was really important because he needed to garner more and more investors and so bad publicity would be fatal to his investment scheme so at the same time you know maybe he needed to sue to avoid uh, people further writing negatively about him and generally um having his business scrutinized and so perhaps the successful litigation at least discouraged any further bad press for some time and also avoided um also meant that he could avoid further scrutiny despite the successful litigation by the end of july uh, 19 i was about to say 2020 um, by the end of July 1920, the Boston Post's acting editor was really suspicious, had grown really suspicious of Ponzi, and he had, ins he had sent investigators to look into his scheme. And also at this time, the authorities were circling in on Ponzi as well, um, looking into the scheme. And on the same day, an unfavourable arti uh, uh, unfavorable article was published on Ponzi. The state officials had also met with Ponzi, but um, Ponzi, in a very 1920s way, uh, managed to divert officials away from looking into the books, which bought himself some more time. It should be note noted at this point that um, it was said that approximately at the height of the scheme, 75% of the Boston police force were investors in Ponzi's scheme. And so that did, it did buy Ponzi a lot of um, power and influence within the city. Ponzi was not discriminatory with who invested in the scheme. And so there, within Boston there and the wider surrounding areas, there were the very wealthiest people of society investing. And then alongside that, you had your average Joes, your average policeman on the beat, as well as the chief of police investing. And there were lots of people reinvesting and getting returns. So Ponzi was a well-known, powerful and influential person within Boston society. So it, I think when you see the details of Ponzi with, you know, the state officials got diverted and all of this stuff, it sounds all very dick dastardly, but at the same time, um, 
the I think it was all a bit more subtle than that as well because Ponzi was just a very powerful and influential person at that point um, but at the same time there were a lot of people continuing to ask questions particularly financial commentators uh, asking questions surrounding how the scheme could legitimately provide the returns promised and the other thing that was kind of the smoking gun on this but I don't think particularly well it, I'm assuming it wasn't really well known but Ponzi hadn't actually invested any of his own money into the company and that's was something that was seen as highly suspicious um, within the commentate the financial commentators and there was um, a financial journalist called Clarence Barron who had calculated that in order to realize the returns promised to all of the investors that Ponzi would need to purchase 160 million postal coupons and in circulation there was only 27,000 and so there there wasn't any proof that Ponzi was really purchasing coupons in any meaningful quantities and certainly not in significant quantities to actually make money and so um, Clarence Barron along with other financial commentators were essentially just wondering where's all this money coming from and how is he paying back the investors uh, there was continued bad publicity for ponzi which had caused panicked runs on the company and essentially investors would read this bad press and then clamor outside ponzi's office to, to get their money out and within ponzi was still at this stage uh, paying back paying out money and it was said that um, within three days two million dollars had been paid out and apparently by all accounts ponzi was you know he'd he'd all be he'd be very sort of jolly and calm and in good spirits i guess and it you know i just think at this point it's probably i'm thinking of that the meme with the dog that's um just chilled out in the burning house like ponzi's going out of his office with these crowds of investors demanding their money handing out coffee and donuts just saying that you know reassuring them that there's nothing to worry about um but the run was the run on his company was rousing more and more suspicion and um the, by this point the state attorney so this is uh this is august 1920 the state attorney has ordered an audit to be commissioned into ponzi's company and it turned out that the audit was almost impossible to do because ponzi's accounting system was just literally like an index card of investors names and and yeah there was just a lack of detail and record um on the whole thing which i mean you know if if there weren't all the other red flags before then a giant red flag of something being completely amiss and by this point ponzi is still trying to divert um attention away from this bad publicity and he hires a publicist um, named William McMasters 
The hiring of the publicist majorly backfires, however, for Ponzi as essentially McMaster's just doesn't the more he gets to know Ponzi, the more he just doesn't like the guy. And he po McMaster's also was suspicious of Ponzi and he just didn't seem like I mean, he was he he was all he was kind of to McMaster's. I think Ponzi was all show and no go. You know, he had this. He looked the part and he walked the walk. But essentially, um, McMaster's didn't really consider Ponzi as particularly competent, uh, especially when it came to finances. And at one point, apparently, McMaster's had described Ponzi as a financial idiot, which just pretty much sums it up. And, you know, there were certain things that McMaster's was suspicious about. Uh, by all accounts, the furniture in Ponzi's office was rented and he, Ponzi was also depositing his own money in a bank and McMaster's wondered why he wouldn't just put the money in the scheme because, you know, in the bank compared to this scheme, the interest was pitiful. And, um... So these kind of things made McMaster's really kind of suspicious of Ponzi and by sheer coincidence the Boston Post was uh, McMaster's former employer and eventually McMaster's goes to the Boston Post uh, to talk through his suspicions. That results in more bad press and then by the by the late summer Ponzi's account was overdrawn and because there was even more of a run of investors withdrawing and the business was reported then as insolvent the collapse of Ponzi's company not only um, obviously bankrupted his company but also collapsed six banks and they were banks that had either been providing loans to investors or loans to Ponzi in order to fund the returns to investors so you can see how this cycle created these banks just to fail and um, Ponzi was charged um, and the scale of this scheme was just completely sensational and unprecedented as it played out from start to finish over the course of just nine months and by the time Ponzi was arrested he was approximately three million dollars short of what was promised to investors which in today's money is the equivalent of 40 million dollars. Ponzi is um, charged and convicted bizarrely for postal fraud to begin with um, and it was only later that he was convicted of the theft for the actual investment scam interestingly which resulted in two stints in prison and if you're into your American criminal law um, Ponzi's case is I wouldn't say a landmark case but it's notable because of these two different charges um, but on I'm gonna sort of skip over that because that's probably 
not that interesting to most people. But on Ponzi's release, um, he had he sets up similar schemes in Florida, and then he's imprisoned again, which results in his immediate deportation to Italy in 1934. And um, then. When he's from Italy, Ponzi then moves to Brazil and essentially for the for his later years he's suffering from poor health throughout the 1940s and then he dies in 1949, aged 66. In a final interview to an American reporter, he says, and I'm not doing an Italian accent, he says, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice aforethought, I had given them the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. So there's lots of conjecture with the Ponzi case surrounding his intentions when the scheme was created. So a lot of critics of Ponzi writing ne negative articles about him did question Ponzi's competence. Um, and to be honest, it's, it's difficult to see whether Ponzi actually believed in the schemes and just had like this delusion of grandeur and tried desperately to make it work and it just he just got completely in over his head or um whether Ponzi actually had a deliberate intention from the beginning to con people and I think the thing that points that that is not particularly clear with Ponzi is that Ponzi's behavior is very inconsistent. So he has this business idea which is legitimate and can potentially make money and he, at, at the beginning he's paying back investors which you know both of these things suggest that Ponzi might have actually believed from the start that this was a workable business and um Perhaps later on, he then kind of got in a bit too deep as there became this kind of investment frenzy and and maybe then alongside that became sort of delusional, kidding every, you know, trying to fool everyone around him, but also himself. Um, I think it's because you just wonder really how he if he was planning to con every from the con everyone from the beginning you do wonder how how this would have played out because obviously you know this something would eventually give and in that situation you would have thought that ponzi would would have could have done a runner but he he doesn't i mean you just you just think he could have just taken all the money and disappeared into the sunset and apparently at one point there was a plan there he had some kind of plan to visit his mother in Italy with his wife and and that kind of got put on ice because he was worried that people might you know get suspicious of him I guess and he could have just done that and just taken all the money so I do wonder, you know, how or what Ponzi was expecting to happen with all of this. 
Um, so perhaps he was just delusional after all. Um, but it's it's very much a question mark over the Ponzi case, which is quite interesting because I think with more modern Ponzi schemes or Ponzi schemes certainly that have happened since him, um, the deliberate intention to con everyone from the beginning is a little bit more established. Whereas with Ponzi, because we have this legitimate business that could turn profit it does make you wonder was this actually what he was planning to do from the beginning um, and then of course there is the the business in the bank stuff in Montreal um, so Ponzi kind of knows that the playbook for Ponzi schemes at this stage so you know perhaps he's just kind of replicating um, replicating what happened at the bank but with uh, you know with the front of this business that in theory could make money so that was the case of Charles Ponzi and as we all know since Charles Ponzi over the decades there have been several Ponzi schemes running in countries all over the world with victims coming from all sorts of different backgrounds and socio-economic groups. I just thought I would round this up I guess by doing um, a summary of common themes that we see in Ponzi schemes. So the first one is if something is too good to be true it probably is. So from the robbing Peter to pay Paul scheme that I'll call it at Banco Zarossi to Charles Ponzi's scheme itself. There were returns promised to investors that couldn't be matched by competing banks or similar investment opportunities. And it sounds a little bit cliche and it's an old adage, but if something is too good to be true, it probably is. And that, I guess, I will describe as red flag number one that should raise more questions than provide answers. The second common theme is peer pressure, and that has been used as a tool for the person managing the Ponzi scheme. So Charles Ponzi relied heavily on word of mouth in order to bring in new investors. And earlier investor, investors who were seeing returns could tell their friends and family about this investment opportunity and bring in new investors. And there was this kind of FOMO that was created um, because people would feel like they were missing out in a um, from a good opportunity if they didn't invest their money. But equally, um, the investor who had seen returns had this sense of FOMO for not reinvesting their money. So that's why you had people in Charles Ponzi's case reinvesting their money. They had seen their money double over 90 days. So why wouldn't they then pass up the opportunity to do that again? So it seems silly that someone would reinvest their money like this, knowing, well, they wouldn't know that it was a Ponzi scheme. But I guess for us seeing people do this, it looks kind of silly. But for someone who had seen a return, it kind of does, it kind of makes sense to just reinvest their money, right? And I think that this does put pressure on people to make make quick decisions and it creates this um, undue influence, I guess, on people to, which results in them acting irrationally. So red flag number two I'll describe is 
uh, feeling pressurised to invest a lot of money and also make quick decisions to commit to investing a lot of money, um, even if that's from someone that you know, without having access to all of the information. And common theme number three, which links to the peer pressure point is that um, Ponzi schemes have in the past also infiltrated groups and preyed on groups of people in order to more efficiently bring in new investment. In the case of Charles Ponzi, the Italian community were particularly enthusiastic investors from the outset and Ponzi was able to gain trust easily within the community being an Italian migrant. When the bad press and very valid criticism of Charles Ponzi's scheme came, the articles also included racist stereotyping and general immigrant bashing, which resulted in the Italian community really riding out for Ponzi and more fervently investing in the Ponzi scheme as they had done previously. Um, And Ponzi schemes since then have really latched onto this idea of infiltrating certain groups, whether that's a church group, a migrant community, or a group of stay-at-home mums. People feel uh, security and confidence within their groups, and they see other people doing uh, investing money or behaving in a certain way, and that makes people feel more confident about the decisions that they are making and unfortunately that does mean that Ponzi schemes have been able to run more effectively by infiltrating groups of people. The unfortunate consequence of that is that often uh, this results in Ponzi schemes targeting vulnerable people in economically precarious situations and can sadly result in victims who can ill afford to lose anything, easily losing everything they have. The other thing I wanted to briefly touch upon, and I will briefly touch upon it because in the case of uh, Charles Ponzi, I don't think this was present, but in Ponzi schemes and MLMs, which are multi-level marketing schemes and pyramid schemes, there is this common dynamic um, which has been uh, described as mirroring uh, the kind of behaviour that you see in cults. And there have been uh, several books and papers written about this. Uh, Prominently, there has been um, a book written by a guy called Stephen Butterfield in 1999 called Amway, The Cult of Free Enterprise. If you're not from the US, Amway is a company which is described as one of the largest multi-level marketing companies in the world. And there's also a guy called Douglas M. Brooks, who is an attorney in the US who specialises in representing victims of pyramid schemes and deceptive MLMs. Um, and he has written a, um, a paper on business opportunity scams and he um, writes about how MLMs mirror 
Cult and his paper was published in 2019 in the International Cultic Studies Association Annual Conference and his paper's titled um, Coercive Techniques in Business Opportunity Cults and in the paper he's um, written about um, Butterfield's books um, on Amway as well as other um, MLMs and he's uh, written about these kind of themes that you've got in MLMs of mass meetings with enthusiastic and um, dynamic, charismatic people at the top um, giving speeches and um, there being this kind of focus on recruitment to this uh, this kind of down, the downline distributors who are effectively um, the people who uh, sign up to these things and are then trying to um, re recruit others to um, join the, you know, join the company. And um, then they are effectively distributors. But um, as as we all know, there's this um, uh, common theme of uh, the product actually not being the most important part of uh, the company you know there's only the only way to make money effectively is from recruiting people and there's just this kind of um, general dynamic at play with this charismatic leader at the top and these individuals who are distributing or investing um, which has this um, relationship between that kind of cult behavior and um, I will just yeah I will just kind of stop there I think because there are other Ponzi schemes and um, uh, I guess business practices that I'll speak about in other podcasts that perhaps kind of go into it a little bit more um, but it's just something that I really wanted to just touch on because it is um, another kind of common theme that we've seen play out since Charles Ponzi. I think when you talk to the people who invest in these kind of things or they, um, you know, become distributors in MLMs, they start off very pragmatically as um, they join an MLM, for example, as a means to um, make money and work flexibly, uh, often um, because these opportunities we'll call them um, enable people to work more flexibly than a traditional job um, so it all seems very pragmatic to begin with and then they there's this kind of um, it becomes a lot more than that um, and it becomes a lot about uh, this idea of there being this family that, and the people around them are part of this thing which they'll often is is described as people by people at the top as a type of family and it becomes almost a, a kind of lifestyle and and that I think that that's the dynamics at play then um do kind of become something other than just an investment opportunity um so yeah um, I'm sure we're all familiar with this kind of thing and, um, you know, I will, as I said, there's other um, scams that I'll talk about in other episodes which um, will kind of deep dive that a little bit more. So there we have it really, that's 
the Ponzi episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and I will be covering, of course, a couple of other well-known Ponzi schemes in future episodes. Bernard Madoff has, at the time of recording, not so long ago passed, and so uh, I would really, really like to do an episode on, on Bernard Madoff, but there's also a couple of other Ponzi schemes that I have in the pipeline. Um, so yes, this will be the first and certainly not the last time that you will hear about this kind of scam on this podcast. And so next week, I'm going to be looking at a political scandal. Uh, But in the meantime, if you like this, please rate, review and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. And I'll catch you next week.